Okay, here we go. God bless you all. Welcome to our Bible study night. We're working through the book of Acts. Currently we're in chapter 15. And if you are following along in the notes, we are in part 8 of what is ultimately a 12-part study on all 28 chapters of the book of Acts. Um, We've seen in Acts 15 a very important moment in church history where a serious challenge came to the gospel of grace. The message that the apostles had been preaching came under real attack in the Antioch church from some Jewish believers who had come out of the party of the Pharisees. Remember, they were very uh, legalistic, following the letter of the law. And they had come along basically saying, Gentiles who are getting saved also need to be circumcised and observe all of the law of Moses. Otherwise, they can't truly be saved. And so, the... Apostles, especially Barnabas and Paul, when they heard this, they realized this was a serious issue. And it was taken up in Jerusalem, in what is commonly called the Jerusalem Council, where the apostles, elders, other church leaders gathered there to discuss this issue. And we saw last time that there were four apostles that Luke mentions and briefly tells us of their words that were given to address this council. Peter went first, then Paul and Barnabas, and then finally the apostle James. This is not James the brother of John. He had already been put to death by Herod. This is the Lord's brother, James, who wrote the epistle of James. So, after their four addresses to the group, it was unanimously understood through the Holy Spirit that the answer to this question was a resounding no. Gentiles do not need to be circumcised, nor do they need to keep all the feasts, laws, customs, kosher, food, restrictions of the Jewish people. The the answer was very clear. No, they do not need to do all of that. Salvation is by grace alone. And one of the key words that we saw last time was, don't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I like that. Make it easy for people to come to Christ. Don't make it difficult. Yes, they need to repent. They need to give up their life of sin. But don't make it difficult and lay this heavy burden, this yoke that even we were not able to endure, the yoke of the whole law of Moses. So, the outcome of that was they came up with a few simple guidelines, and then the council decided that a letter needed to be drafted, and that this letter needed to be delivered to the various Gentile churches, Gentile believers. And so that's where we'll take it up tonight. If you're in the notes, we're at the bottom of page 170, the council's letter to Gentile believers. And we'll read in Acts 15 from verse 22 all the way down to verse 35. It says, Then the apostles and elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, 
Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. That's the end of the letter. Then verse 30, The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Silas decided to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So, let's go back and look at a few of these things a little more carefully. Verse 22, we started off here reading, The apostles, elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and they chose Judas and Silas, who were leaders among the brothers, and we read later on that they were also prophets. So, the decision has been made that just a few simple requirements have to be passed along to the Gentile believers who are coming to Christ, not that they need to be circumcised, not that they need to keep the whole law of Moses, but just a few simple things needed to be spelled out clearly in this letter. The outcome was crystal clear now. Gentiles do not need to observe the law of Moses. I hate to keep emphasizing that, but it's amazing how the devil still tries to bring these deceptions into the churches today. And not to belabor the point, but whole churches have been led astray. I'm going to be very clear with my words here. They've been led astray into teaching Gentiles that they must now observe the Jewish laws, the Jewish feasts, eat kosher food, learn Hebrew, sing Hebrew, do Israeli dances, otherwise you can't really get the whole blessing, you can't really get the full package from God. The decision of the Jerusalem Council was, no, that's going backwards, away from the grace of God, and the message that we've been preaching in the Gentile world, all you need to do is repent and come to Jesus. And so, with the outcome clear, <clears throat> they now had to put this into writing. And I want you to notice how marvelously the Holy Spirit, and I want to emphasize this, it was the Holy Spirit that brought about unity in what could have ended up in a disastrous church split over this doctrinal issue. And many a church has divided over this down through history, but fortunately, in the beginning, it did not result in a split. It says the apostles and elders with the whole church. So here again, after this serious doctrinal challenge, they came through with flying colors, once again, the whole church in one heart and 
in one mind, just as we saw in Acts 2 and also in Acts 4. They started off in a marvelous unity, but the enemy tried to undermine that here, but he was not successful. And again, I would attribute this directly to two things. The Word of God that was brought out in the council and the Holy Spirit that united them. More about the Holy Spirit in a minute. Let's come back to these two leaders because one of them is going to play a prominent role in the near future in the book of Acts. Their names are given Judas Barsabbas and Silas. And you may remember that name Barsabbas. You have to go all the way back to Acts 1. Remember when they cast lots to choose a replacement for Judas Iscariot, not to be confused with this Judas. They chose two men. One of the two was a Joseph Barsabbas. And it has often been presumed that he and this Judas may have been brothers. May have been. We don't have any proof of that, but the two of them may have been brothers. In any event, we do know that this Judas, not to be confused with the traitor Judas, this Judas and Silas, two things are told us. Verse 22, they were leaders in the church, in Jerusalem, and they were both prophets. So they were obviously uh, very much involved in ministry in the Jerusalem church, and because of the fact that the whole church recognized the grace, the anointing, the calling on their lives as leaders and prophets, they were chosen by the church to go along with Paul and Barnabas as they traveled back to Antioch with this letter to give further proof that this was a genuine message from the Jerusalem church. Remember, it came out in this council meeting that part of the reason for this trouble in the first place was people who had gone out unauthorized, they had not gone with the authority and the blessing of the church, they went out in their own authority, preaching things that were contrary to the apostolic message. So, to uh, emphasize the need for these things to be done in unity, under the authority of the apostles and the church, they sent these physical delegates along with Paul and Barnabas, and the letter, so there would be no doubt that the message that they were delivering was in full harmony, full agreement, and under the full authority of the Jerusalem church and the whole council of elders and apostles who had met there. Now, Silas, we read... Uh, remains in Antioch. Judas and Silas were sent back to Jerusalem after delivering this letter, but interestingly, and I think it's the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit keeps Silas in Antioch because the Holy Spirit has an upcoming assignment for him. More about that later. Verse 23, it says, With them, with Judas and Silas, they sent the following letter. And we're actually given the contents of that letter. It's quite short, and it's quite simple. Again, in keeping with the the conclusion that they came to in this council, keep it simple. Don't make it complicated. Don't make it difficult for the Gentiles. Notice also in verse 23 the letter is addressed to the Gentile believers. To the Gentile believers. There's no need 
for this letter to be circulated amongst Jewish believers. This is for Gentile believers. That was the whole question. Do Gentiles who are coming to Christ need to be circumcised, and do they need to observe the laws of Moses? The the Jewish believers had already been circumcised, so there was no need for them to be getting this letter. This was specifically addressed to the need of Gentiles who were coming to Christ. Verse 24. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. Now, this is important, and I want to take a couple more minutes here on this point. The book of Acts has actually shown us from the very beginning how the church was born, how it was founded and established, and as it grew, how they maintained this oneness both in spirit and in doctrine, in what they believed. We've mentioned this from the very beginning, the importance of the apostles. The apostles, together with the prophets, we're told in Ephesians, are the foundation of the church. They became the foundation in several ways. They were the leaders. They were given revelation by the Holy Spirit on how to teach the church, and what they taught the church came to be known as the Apostles' teaching, or the Apostles' doctrine. And that was the final authority, and much of that eventually became our New Testament. But even before the New Testament was written, they had these living apostles who were there teaching the apostles' doctrine. And they were the ones who established ministries and authority in the different local churches. We saw how Paul and Barnabas laid hands on elders. They were the ones confirming and uh, ordaining elders in the various local churches. We can go all the way back to Acts 6. It was the apostles who laid hands on the deacons in the early church, giving them the authority to do their ministry. Well, these Judaizers that had caused this whole mess, it's very important to notice what's at the root of it. (coughs) In the letter, they stated this very clearly. They went out from us without our authorization. Notice how everything that the early church did was done with the authority of the church. Even sending Judas and Silas from Jerusalem to Antioch with this letter was done under the authority of the church. When Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch on their first missionary journey, they were sent out with the blessing of the whole church, meaning they went out under the authority of the church. They weren't doing this on their own. It's so common today to have these Lone Ranger ministries. Everybody's an apostle. Everybody's a prophet. Everybody's something. And when you when you really sit down and ask, where did you get your authority? Who sent you here? Oh, well, I just came on my own. Well, that was not the pattern in the early church. And that's where a lot of confusion came in the early church, and that's where a lot of confusion comes today. And if you look in 2 Peter 2, and the book of Jude, and even in 1 John, all of the apostles addressed this problem. They had plenty of problems already in the first century, with false teachers, false apostles, false prophets, false brethren. And the common denominator is always, they went out from us. They're not with us. They're not 
under our authority. They're acting on their own authority. Beware of ministers like that who have gone out doing their own thing. They have their own ministry, their own name, their own fame. They're promoting themselves. They've got their own revelations, their own agenda, their own ideas, and inevitably it brings confusion. It says they went out from us without our authorization, and they disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. These kinds of people ultimately bring disturbance. They bring trouble in churches because they've not been sent by God. They've been sent by themselves. And we must earnestly pray in these last days that God raises up real apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers with a real anointing, with an apostolic message that's in harmony with the New Testament, not some new strange wind of doctrine that's blowing around in the church, but the same things that Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James were teaching in the early church. So, they had brought confusion with their false teachings, disturbing, unsettling, and troubling the Gentile believers' minds, so it brought about this council and the decision that the council came to. Let's look at verses 25 to 27 again. This is interesting. So we all agreed. We all agreed. Again, notice the, the oneness, the unanimity that they had. Even with this challenge that had come, by the grace of God, and because of the working of the Holy Spirit, and this is going to lead into the next section, because of their sensitivity to listen to the Holy Spirit and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, they were all one. They all came into agreement. They weren't fighting and arguing and you know beating up each other, having a brawl in this council meeting. As soon as they heard Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James speak, and they all brought forth the truth of God's word, they said, that's it. There's no more controversy. There's no more dispute. This is what we must do. So we all agreed to choose some men, send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul. Notice again the switch in the order of the names. It went from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and Barnabas, but now, back in Jerusalem, it reverses again to Barnabas and Paul. That's not a mistake. That's, I think that's significant. It shows that in Jerusalem, Barnabas was recognized as a chief leader. He was a chief apostolic leader. They were still getting to know this guy, Paul. They, they knew of him, they had met him, but still, in their mind's eye, it was Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. Our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, Oh, that we had more leaders with this resume. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not men who have promoted themselves, who have fleeced the sheep to get rich, who have done X, Y, or Z to push themselves. They have risked their lives for the name of Jesus Christ. And that's no exaggeration. <clears throat> Excuse me, we've already seen that in earlier chapters of Acts. These guys not only risked their lives, it's quite likely that Paul died and was raised back to life after being stoned to death in Lystra. So these were the real deal. These were proven leaders. They had proven their commitment to Christ, and that's why the church 
can trust them with this matter. So, this comes to what, for me, has perhaps been one of the most important verses of Scripture in the past several years. And I'm not saying that just because we've come to it. Those of you that have heard me teach and preach in the last couple of years, you will know that I've referred often to this verse. This is a watershed truth here, and I want to take some time with it. This is what comes next in the letter. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And then they list, you are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from meat, of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality, period. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. That's the end of the letter. How simple. How simple. This is an amazing piece of scripture. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that. (laughs) That's profound. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Now, that implies something very powerful. They knew what the Holy Spirit wanted. There's no other way to slice it. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Well, who told you what seems good to the Holy Spirit and what doesn't? They must have known the Holy Spirit. And that's the key here. This church had a leadership that knew the Holy Spirit. They knew what the Holy Spirit wanted. They were sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They could discern what the Holy Spirit was saying, what the Holy Spirit was wanting, and what the Holy Spirit was doing. That is absolutely essential if we're going to have proper church leadership. We must have leaders who can say the same thing. Here's what the Holy Spirit is saying. This seems good to the Holy Spirit. And you know what? If it seems good to the Holy Spirit, it seems good to us also. This is profound. This has changed the whole way I approach leadership, the whole way I look at churches and church government. And I'm able to go back over 43 years of the good, bad, and the ugly and start to understand why some churches prosper and some don't. If you don't have leaders with this capacity, you're going to end up with something else. You're going to have leaders who are doing what seems good to them. What fits in with their prejudice, with their preconceived agenda, with what they like and the way they want to do it, and this is the way it's going to be done. If you don't like my way, bye. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That's why I said earlier, it was the Holy Spirit that maintained this unity in the Jerusalem Council. You can't do that by some kind of an ecumenical movement or some planning session where a whole bunch of people get together and say, we're going to have unity in the church. It never works. It never works. There's only one way that true unity comes about in the church, and that's when you have people who are all tuned in to the same frequency of the Holy Spirit. They've laid down their own carnal agendas, their carnal prejudices, their carnal ways, and they've all come into tune with the Holy Spirit. Look, I'm a musician. I've played music for most of my life. And I remember distinctly in my early years 
in some of the bands that I played in, we would get together for our rehearsals or even for our, you know, performances, and we would have to tune all of our instruments. It was, a, it was hilarious. You have, you know, three guitars, a bass, trumpet, trombone, saxophone, whatever, and everybody's got a different tune. And everybody wants everybody else to tune to them. And if everybody tunes to me, well, what if I'm out of tune? Then the whole thing's out of tune. And, you know, you, you learn pretty fast. You better do it the right way, and that is everybody tunes to the same standard. It's usually a tuning fork. It's an exact frequency that everybody, I don't care who you are, whether you're the harpist, the flutist, or the guitar player, everybody has to get in tune with that frequency. And if I tune with the tuning fork, and John tunes with the tuning fork, and Mary tunes with the tuning fork, you know what? When we all play together, we're all in tune. We didn't tune to one another, we tuned to the standard. The Holy Spirit is the tuning fork. And the only way the church can be one is when you have everyone in tune with the Holy Spirit. And sadly, very often people get elevated to positions of leadership and they still have prejudices, they still have their own personal agendas and likes and dislikes, and they've not taken all of that to the cross, well, we're going to have problems. We start trying to tune to one another, and it ain't going to work, because we're not in tune with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit doesn't care about your likes and dislikes. Notice the order here. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. <laughs> They met together in Jerusalem to find out what saith the Lord. What does the Word of God say, and what is the Holy Spirit saying? That's how they were able to come to a clear and unanimous decision on this issue. When you don't have that, you're going to end up with problems. James... Remember, he's the same one that spoke in this council. He writes letter, later in his letter, in the epistle of James, listen to these words, James 4, verses 1 to 3. I, I don't know, I can't prove it, but I'm al almost wondering if he wasn't reflecting back on this big council meeting in Jerusalem and how they were able to avert a fight and a quarrel, and a big church split. Listen to what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight, you do not have, because you do not ask God. And even when you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. <clears throat> Let me translate this. The reason so many churches end up in controversies, divisions, and splits is you've got a bunch of people who all want what they want. They, unfortunately, were not able to come to the spiritual level that the leaders in Jerusalem were able to come to in this particular event. They were listening to the Holy Spirit. They wanted to know what seems good to the Holy Spirit. The only way you can discern that is if you've first taken your desires, your prejudices, your way of wanting things done 
to the cross and lay it all down there and say, Lord, I don't want anything. I only want what you want. It's easy for me to say that, but it's not as easy to come to that. Sometimes it takes us years to finally come to a place where we're free from our own secret motives, ambitions, agendas, and we can honestly say, God, I don't want anything. Whatever you want is what I want. And it's marvelous how they came to that place in the early church, and they were able to say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. I want you to do some homework this week. Think about those words. Think about what is implied in those words. They knew the Holy Spirit. How many of us even have the Holy Spirit, let alone know Him? What is the Holy Spirit saying? Read Revelation 2 and 3. Each and every one of those seven messages ends on the same note. This is what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He who has ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Do we have ears to hear? Or are we just listening to ourselves? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. That's what this letter is. This is actually a letter from the Holy Spirit to the Gentile believers. And I want you to notice again how simple this letter is. Here are the requirements. Abstain from food offered to idols. Don't eat blood. Don't eat meat strangled of, of strangled animals. And stay away from sexual immorality. That's all. Those are the requirements. That's what seemed good to the Holy Spirit and they were able to put their amen on what the Holy Spirit was saying and say, that seems good to us also. And again, <clears throat> that implies volumes. They had come to a place where they were sensitive to the Holy Spirit, they knew what the Holy Spirit wanted, and they had grown accustomed to following the lead of the Holy Spirit. There are times that are fairly often in churches where <clears throat> we may be ministering, we sense the flow of the Holy Spirit, and suddenly somebody interrupts that flow, they've got a prophecy or they've got something they want to say, and it kills the anointing. It instantly kills the whole meeting. Why? Because they were out of the Spirit. They don't know the Holy Spirit. They can't discern the, the moving and the, the voice of the Holy Spirit. There's no way they could understand what seemed good to the Holy Spirit at that particular moment. And again, we need to pray. We need to cry out to God to bring us to this place of oneness with the Holy Spirit. Lord, help me to get in tune with the right frequency here. The frequency of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's why this is all so important. And many of you have heard me preach this many, many times. It is paramount that every member of the church come to this place. And here's why. Revelation 22, verse 17. Another amazing scripture. This verse of scripture has revolutionized my spiritual life. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. One word. The Spirit and the Bride, but notice... There are two entities here, only one voice. Two entities, just one word. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. To me, if you analyze that, again, it, you can write a whole book on this. The Bride of Christ... That group that's going to be caught up in the rapture, we call them the bride, 
They have a distinct quality that is brought out in this statement. The bride has become one with the Holy Spirit. They're one. They have the same desire. Spirit and the bride want one thing. Come, Lord Jesus. Two people, the Spirit and the bride, but a unanimous one voice. That's what God is trying to do with you and me. Make us one with the Holy Spirit. So in tune with the Holy Spirit, so aware of everything the Holy Spirit is saying and doing, that finally, we're just one. We're one voice. Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. The bride of Christ and the Holy Spirit are becoming one. And I believe when they are truly one, that's when we're going up in the rapture. But only those, to backtrack a little bit, only those who were able to make a statement like this, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to me. What are you saying, brother? You know what seems good to the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. We better come to that. They did in the early church. They knew what seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned last time, and, and I say this with sadness in my heart, some of the church splits that I'm aware of over the years not, have not even been over serious doctrinal issues like the one before this church in Jerusalem. I'm not making this up. I know churches that have split over what color carpet to put in the sanctuary. What kind of a van the church is going to purchase. How absurd! What if everybody got on their face and said, Holy Spirit, what color carpet do you want our church to have? Maybe the Holy Spirit would come back and say, I don't want any carpet. I want you on a wooden floor on your knees. You need to humble yourselves. Maybe you don't need a van. Maybe you need to walk five miles. They weren't even listening to the Holy Spirit. James hits the nail on the head. This is where fights and quarrels come from. You've all got your own agendas. You've all got your own prejudices. You've all got your own desires. And you're going to continue to fight and quarrel if you don't lay all that down, crucify the flesh with all of its affections and lusts, and come into the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh. Well, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you. Remember the whole problem, these Judaizers were trying to bring this heavy yoke of the law on these poor Gentiles. The word of the Lord that came forth in the council is stop trying to make it difficult for these people. Make it easy. Don't lay these heavy burdens on them like the Pharisees. Remember, they were from the party of the Pharisees, like the Pharisees were doing. Holy Spirit does not want to burden you and me with grievous commandments and laws and requirements. And if you find yourself in a place where you're under bondage and, and heavy weights and laws and binding restrictions, run, my friend. Get out of there as fast as you can. It's not the Holy Spirit. It is not the Holy Spirit's way, nor is it His desire to burden us with a whole bunch of rules and laws and commandments about, you know, how you fix your hair, what kind of makeup you're allowed, whether you can have jewelry or not, how long your skirt has to be, and on and on and on and on it goes. <clears throat> Holy Spirit does not want to burden you with anything except these simple requirements. And we've mentioned this before, 
three of the four requirements just have to do with food restrictions. Big deal. Fast. Don't eat anything if it's going to cause your brother to stumble. Stop eating. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. If my eating something stumbles you, I'm going to stop eating it. That's how much they love one another in the early church. Now, what are we going to do? Fight over kosher food and non-kosher food? He says, abstain from any food that you know has been offered to an idol, any food that still has the blood in it, and meat of strangled animals. The fourth requirement has nothing to do with the law of Moses. It predates the law of Moses. It's still in effect today, and it will be forever. Abstain from sexual immorality, period. It's sad that they needed to state that in this letter, but they wanted to be crystal clear. We're not saying you can sin... We're giving you a few simple guidelines, but you still need to repent. And we're not in any way saying that you're free to commit sexual immorality or go out and worship an idol. No. The first call of the gospel is to repent. You need to repent for those things. And notice the ending of the letter. You will do well to avoid these things. You will do well to avoid these things. And I know it sounds old-fashioned, and people tell me, come on, pastor, you need to get with the times. Things have changed now. You can't keep preaching that same old stuff about abstinence. Well, I will. The apostles did. The New Testament does, so I'm not going to change my message to suit the culture. Abstain from all forms of sexual immorality. You will do well if you do. You fall into fornication, you're bringing condemnation and death on yourself. You commit adultery in marriage, you're bringing a curse and death on yourself. You fall into pornography, homosexuality, uh, all this transgender confusion in our modern culture. You're not going to do well. You will do well if you avoid sexual immorality in all of its different forms. In all of its different forms. I have never yet known anyone that did well by committing fornication, adultery, or being a homosexual. I've never known anyone that did well by those things. The Bible doesn't lie. God is trying to spare people from heartache and destruction. You will do well to avoid these things. So that's the letter. That's the end of the letter. So Paul, Barnabas, together with Judas and Silas, Notice again, they're sent off by the church. They're not going on their own authority. They're being sent out under the authority of the other apostles, elders, and the church. They were sent off, went back to Antioch. They gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read the letter and it's not hard to understand this. We've already mentioned how easy <laughs> this was. A couple of simple requirements, making it easy for the Gentiles. They grasped that immediately, because it says they read the letter and they were glad for its encouraging message. A lot of people would stone us if we went into a church and preached these things today. Oh, don't come in here with that legalism, man, telling us we need to abstain from immorality. Ah, oh, that's old-fashioned stuff. They were encouraged. Praise God, this is the word of the Lord. We're going to do this. We're going to stop eating any food offered to idols. We're going to stop eating our blood, whatever, our meat from strangled animals, and we're certainly going to stop any immorality 
from this point on. They were encouraged. I want you to notice where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. This was the Holy Spirit working in the early church. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit to write these things down in this letter. And here's the fruit that it came from the Holy Spirit. It was liberating. The message contained in this letter was liberating to all of the Gentile believers. They were immediately encouraged. They were rejoicing when they heard the contents of this letter. What was the fruit of the Judaizers who had started this whole mess coming into Antioch saying, you need to keep the law of Moses, you need to be circumcised, laying down all these heavy laws. What did it bring? It brought disturbance, it brought bondage, and it brought trouble. The message of the Holy Spirit brought liberation. It brought joy back to the hearts of these Gentile believers. I don't want to go into detail tonight, but I've had my share of experience in the past with legalistic Pentecostal churches. Oh yeah, they holler in tongues, they prophesy, but they have a list a mile long of all the requirements, all the rules and all the regulations that you need to follow if you're going to be holy. I'm talking about measuring women's skirt length, checking people's hair to see how long it is, chiding ladies if they have any makeup on, and on and on and on the foolishness goes. God could care less about all that junk. The Holy Spirit wants to liberate people so that they can walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh. That style only brings bondage, hypocrisy, and more sin, actually. More law brings more sin. And usually, it's the kind of sin that goes undercover. It says in verse 32, Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, we already touched on this, they were preeminent leaders in the Jerusalem church. They had a real ministry. They were respected, they were known to be prophets. And they've now gone with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch, and they don't miss a step. They go right to work when they get there. It says, Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much, said much. What did they say? They said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them, but Silas decided to remain there. They were sent, but only one went. Judas went, Silas remained. Now it doesn't say anything yet about why Silas remained, and the scriptures never do say why he remained, I would have to assume, based on the fact that they're prophets, they're leaders, they have proven to know the voice of the Holy Spirit, they're sensitive to what the Holy Spirit wants, I have to assume the Holy Spirit had already spoken to Silas, no, you stay here. I want you here. Don't go with Judas. You remain here in Antioch. So their prophetic ministry is a great blessing to the Antioch church. They said much. We're not told all that they taught and all that they said, but it strengthened the brothers there. Let me insert another side note here. The Antioch church had Paul and Bartimaeus. My goodness. They certainly don't need any other ministers besides themselves, do they? Apparently they do. That's why Ephesians 4 says we need apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the church. You can't do it with one or two. 
We need all of the gifts, all of the gift ministries working together in harmony to bring the church to maturity and to perfection. And Paul and Barnabas could have taken, you know, this arrogant attitude. Look, we don't need you all preaching here. They've already got us. Just deliver your letter and go back to to Jerusalem. But no, Paul and Barnabas recognize these guys have an anointing. These guys have a message. These guys can help strengthen the work here. Go ahead. They gave them full liberty to minister in the Antioch church. And again, I've seen the good, bad, and the ugly. I've seen churches that welcome any anointed ministry that God brings into their midst. I've seen other churches that have closed doors. We're it. We have everything we need here. I'm the pastor. I'm the leader. I'm the five-fold ministry. I have all nine gifts of the Holy Spirit. We don't need anybody else here. I can do the whole job myself. Well, get ready for burnout, brother. You can't do it all yourself. You need the apostles, you need the prophets, you need the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. And I see something really beautiful about this Antioch church. Many things we could mention, but this is another one here. They were open to the ministries of these two men. They recognized immediately the anointing on their life, the ministry gift that they had been given. It doesn't say they prophesied, they were prophets. They had this ministry gift, the office of a prophet. They acknowledged that, and they welcomed them into Antioch. So, Judas returns to Jerusalem. Silas remains in Antioch. And this is now preparing us for the next major episode, which we'll be waiting until next time to look at. But Paul and Barnabas, who have been working together uh, for more than a few years now, not only in Antioch, they completed their first apostolic mission, returned to Antioch, and probably about two years elapsed since their return from their first missionary journey, with the exception of this trip to Jerusalem and the whole Jerusalem Council, They've been devoting all of their time and energy and efforts to strengthening the Antioch church, strengthening these Gentile believers in this Gentile world. And remember, Antioch has become like the hub of Gentile work and apostolic mission. So probably upwards of two years They've been there discipling, training, strengthening this church. What an exciting time. I mean, they had this visit from Judas and Silas. Silas has stayed on. We don't know exactly for how long. Now, you know, they have him along with Paul and Barnabas teaching the church. My goodness. Can you imagine getting Bible studies from Paul? Barnabas was a great minister, a great leader. And they had these two men there with them for two years, teaching them, instructing them, strengthening them. But that's all about to change. And I'm just going to read the headline of our next section, and that's where we'll pick it up next time. Paul and Barnabas separate There's about to be a major separation between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Silas go one way. Barnabas and John Mark go a different way. And that's where we'll take it up next time. In conclusion, I want you to seriously consider what happened in this Jerusalem council. The very heart and soul of the gospel was under attack. Is salvation by grace, or do we need to add Moses and his laws to it in order for salvation to be complete? Had they gone in that direction, 
that would have been the end of the church. Because the church is founded on grace. Church is founded on a gospel of grace. Paul understood that. That's why he was willing to fight tooth and nail for this truth. This was a very, very important truth worth fighting for. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. The outcome of the council was a unanimous decision to say, no, Gentiles don't need to keep the law of Moses to be saved. How did they arrive at that decision? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They were listening for the Holy Spirit. And so when Peter got up and spoke, when Paul and Barnabas spoke, when James spoke, they heard not only certain scriptures that they cited, certain testimonies that they gave, but what they were really all listening to was what the Holy Spirit was saying to the church. If we want our churches to grow in these last days, if we want our churches to be ready for the coming of the Lord, we better get on our faces and cry out to God to give us that sensitivity and discernment to recognize what the Holy Spirit is saying, what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. And if I have my own agendas, my own likes and dislikes, my own preconceived notions, my own uh, prejudices that I've carried along with me into the church, I better lay them down at the foot of the cross. If we have any hope of coming to this same place that the early church came to, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let's pray tonight that we can come into that oneness with the Holy Spirit. Lay aside anything that is hindering us from coming into that oneness with God's Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for some powerful scripture that we have touched on in this lesson tonight, particularly this one verse, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Help us to understand that. Help us to analyze the depths of what the early church had come to to make that possible. That not only had they been baptized in the Holy Spirit, they were now learning to walk in the Spirit. They had crucified the flesh with all of its lusts and desires and prejudices. They had laid down their own ambitions, their own likes and dislikes, and they were now seeking what seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And Lord, in another place you've told us very clearly, it's those who are led by the Spirit. They are the sons of God. Father, help us to let go of the flesh. Help us to let go of carnal reasoning, carnal ways, carnal uh, ambitions that we've brought along with us into the church. It's high time now that we lay them down. We nail them to the cross. And we come to you humbly asking, what does the Holy Spirit want? What is the Holy Spirit saying to us now? God, I pray for each and every one that's listening tonight or maybe listening in the future. Baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Help us, O oh God, to yield to the Holy Spirit. Dig open our ears, circumcise our hearts and our ears, that we can hear what the Holy Spirit is saying and not be deceived into thinking we're hearing the Holy Spirit when it's really our own will it's our own desires. It's our own voice leading us. My God, my God, my God, help us to come to the place that we just read about. In the end, the Spirit and the Bride say, 
come. Lord, make your bride one with the Holy Spirit. Help us to come to that place where what you want is what we want. What you say is what we say. Father, I pray for each and every one that's on this phone line, online, or even in the future listening to this recording. Help us, O oh God. Help us to come to that place of oneness with the Holy Spirit, where we are in tune with the right frequency, the frequency of the Holy Spirit. God, we give you praise, honor, and glory. Seal these words from the pages of Scripture. Seal them in our hearts tonight. Make us doers of the word, 